Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. CJR recently co-hosted a conference about democracy and the press at the Columbia Journalism School. We called the conference Fault Lines Democracy, and it looked at the ties between democracy and journalism and what strains for both of them could mean to all of us. I wanted to share a particularly engaging conversation that emerged from the conference about how authoritarian regimes in countries like Russia and the Philippines are squashing press freedoms in new ways and how by erasing traces of the past, they're recasting history in dangerous ways. This has a lot to teach us about democracy in America as we enter into an election season. You'll hear from Masha Gessen of The New Yorker and from Jody Ginsburg, who's the president of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Sheila Cornell, a professor here at Columbia, who is an expert in global investigative journalism, moderates the discussion. So we're here to talk about democracy in the world. I'm here with um, distinguished colleagues. We want to talk about history and how it has been weaponized. And I'd like Masha to start off with that because she's the unique perspective of having lived both in Russia and in the US. Uh, so in the Soviet era, there was a dissident joke that the Soviet Union is a country with an unpredictable past. And um, and what that conveyed very clearly was that uh, historical narratives, uh, like other totalitarian narratives, were entirely uh, in the hands of the authorities. And you had to always be clo paying close attention to the correct line on history, right? It was one of the ways of controlling the population, of course, is to always be changing the messaging so that you never know what's true unless you were attentively listening to the television or these days to the pro-government telegram channels, it doesn't matter to what exactly, but you don't know what's true until they've told you what's true. Right? Uh, and that's true of the present, and that's also true of the past. There are all sorts of figurative ways in which history has been weaponized, but of course in Russia right now, history has been literally weaponized. Right? The, the war, the full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 was preceded by the publication in the summer of 2021 of Putin's long historical essay sort of laying for uh, down the new totalitarian line on, uh, on Russia and Ukraine that basically said that, that Ukraine doesn't exist, Ukrainian language doesn't exist, Ukraine has no right to exist as an independent country, and as totalitarian regimes see, according to Hannah Arendt, see themselves as, as enforcing the laws of history. Once history was laid down, the law had to be enforced, and, and, and the war started. Well, this, this resonates very much with me because I come from the Philippines, and last year, Filipinos elected by a landslide Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who has come to power, I mean, there are many reasons for why he's again, pre why another Marcos is president, but one of the reasons is through the erasure of history, the, the erasure of a past of abuse, massive human rights abuses, and of world-class plunder. And it's happening not just in the Philippines, but in many other places. And it's not just erasure, but also the recasting of history. For example, Marcos Jr. said the era of his father was a golden age. And the golden age narrative resonates a lot with with many, in many countries, for example, in, in India, Narendra Modi is 
propagating the notion of a, of a golden age of Hindu glory. And in Russia, the same thing, you know, a, a golden age of, of, um, of Russian imperial glory. In, in Hong Kong, China is issuing new textbooks that said, that say Chi um, Hong Kong was never a British colony because China never signed the treaties that ceded Hong Kong to the British. And so they're saying, therefore, that China deserves to be in charge of Hong Kong. So history is being used to justify the coercion and the illegitimate, illegitimate assertion of power and domination. And that has huge implications, right, for journalists, because our job is to try to speak truth to power, to, to report the truth. And if the narrative becomes something completely different, that puts journalists in the firing line. And I think what's really important when we start to think about the ways in which this works is you get a narrative seeded often by those who are seeking power or who are in power. They're writing their, their essays, they're saying these things in rallies, but increasingly they're also putting these things into law. So journalists and academics who challenge that newly invented version of history are actually breaking the law. If you think a few years ago in Poland, for example, Poland introduced a law in which um, talking about Polish complicity in the Holocaust was a criminal offense. So any academic and journalist that talked about complicity, which there was in many cases, was breaking the law. And so you move from not just a narrative that is intended to build a movement of support, as we've seen in the Philippines and we've seen in Russia and Hong Kong, but also at the same time demonizes and criminalizes those who would report differently. And one of the reasons I think we've been asked to do this panel is to think about how that then reflects back into the US. Well, if you think about the recent Roe versus Wade reversal. It was, I think I've been here about three weeks. I just moved to the US. And the sorts of narratives being used to talk about what was originally intended in the Constitution in the 18th century seems to me very much a reimagining of history intended to take us back to a golden age in which women, frankly, didn't exist or certainly shouldn't have any rights. And that talking about that and challenging that becomes potentially a criminal act, talking about women's rights to um, abortion or, or to make choices becomes potentially a criminal act um, because you're passing on information that you shouldn't. So there are, I think, are clear lines um, of, of concern that we can see, that we can draw from some of these attempts to weaponize and criminalize the reporting of history elsewhere. So this is not a new thing, Masha. In, in, in Russia, as you said, the past has always been an arena of what is new about what is happening now, both in Russia and, and, and the US and elsewhere. Well, I don't know that it's significantly new, but I think that um, uh, something that stands out to me is that uh, I believe that all the sort of autocrats that we have seen rise around the world in the last, say, decade and a half um, all traffic and past-oriented politics, right? Uh, that wasn't true in the 20th century. 20th century totalitarianisms were mostly future-oriented. Right? Um, they, they were going to take you into some imagined uh, uh, golden future. Uh, all 
uh, all these autocrats traffic in the ideas of the golden uh, past, and that comes with traditional values, and that's part of what creates you know, uh, all of these commonalities that, 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 that we see in you know, uh, the demonization of gender ideology, uh, all the, the, the anti-trans legislation, the, uh, the anti-women legislation, the reversal of um, all sorts of social rights uh, that, uh, that have been gained in the last decades. I like very much this idea of the way, I mean, what, what you said about this idea of, of the past being used um, to justify, also to mobilize the public towards, you know, illiberal, illiberal thoughts and illiberal ideas and, to, and to, to use the past to justify, as you said, both racial, gender, and, and other forms of repression. But what does it mean what role do journalists play in all of this? You know, um, I, I grew up in the, in, in the Marcos dictatorship. It was a media environment where information was very much constricted, you know, three newspapers, three TV stations, very different from now. But the journalist's role was to test the limits and to go beyond the limits and to try and inform the public in various creative ways to get around those restrictions and, and braving those restrictions. I don't know exactly how we do it now when the problem is not um, the rationing of information, but the flooding of information in a public sphere that seems to be not controlled by anyone, for um, but by you know, Silicon Valley companies and by all of these people um, you know, mobilizing il um, for anti-democratic members of the public. So I would say our, the, the job of a journalist is to see, investigate, verify, and explain, right? Um, it's to convey what we are experiencing, but also to put that into some context for people. So this, for example, ability to say this, you know, so-and-so said this, but actually that's not what happened, or this isn't happened. And these are the reasons why we know that, by the way, and this is the evidence that we have. And that's our job. It is extraordinarily complicated in a world, and, and Maria Ressa in the Philippines talks about that all this time, where we cannot agree on basic facts. It, the job of a journalist now has become extraordinarily complicated. And again, I think this is where we run into difficulties particularly reporting out of places like the US and the UK, where we, where we kind of assume that everybody's working against the same set of rules, right? But so there's some kind of set of rules that we all agree on. But if you've suddenly got leaders who say, you know, I say this is a flower, and you say, you know, you're the leader, and you say, oh, no, no, that's a caterpillar. Where do you go from there if you cannot agree on basic facts? And I think that's what we're struggling with is, as journalists and, and what I think we were slow to reckon with, but we saw much earlier in, in places like the Philippines, that people were telling lies and we were reporting them the lies as, as factual because somebody said that. And that was where we, I think, that's where it became difficult and where I think we continue to get ourselves into to not somewhat in, in trying to cover politics in particular because we are dealing with people who are quite happy to, to peddle in lies and our reporting of them as, as the, the statements as factual gets us in a, a little bit of a knot. Well, I think um, 
that's partly an acknowledgement of the plain fact that journalists are really ill-equipped to deal with this particular kind of politics, right? Uh, journalists are not historians. Journalists tend to uh, defer to authority, uh, in, uh, even though we like to think that we don't, but we do. Right. Um, for example, when the Supreme Court turns into turns its clerks into a bunch of amateur historians, journalists are really loath to engage with that on substance, um, and that and that's another journalistic bias that that we have, particularly in this country, uh, which is sort of the the anti-substance bias. Right. Uh, when we sit, when we talk about horse race coverage uh, and criticize it rightly, we often fail to talk about what it costs us. Despite all of the, you know, the glut of information that, that, that Jody has described, there's, um, there's a scarcity, there's a scarce value of, of journalistic attention. When journalists are looking at what this means for the future of the Republican Party, they're not looking at the substance of whatever the person uh, that they're talking about uh, uh, has said. And I think we need to be more rigorous and more courageous in engaging with the substance of various statements that we report on. That's the first thing. The other thing that I think we, uh, our job as journalists is to start taking the trope that journalism is the first draft of history very, very seriously. And to think of ourselves, in fact, as laying down the record for a future generation. And I say this as uh, hav having worked as a journalist in Russia and actually just at the very tail end of the Soviet Union and seeing what it's like for a society to confront a blank past, to confront the actual, well, or to fail to confront the absence of historical record. Um, some colleagues and I have actually, in the, in the uh, right after the war in Ukraine began, we've started a thing called the Russian Independent Media Archive, uh, which is an intentional effort to preserve the archive of independent media. When this is over, when the Putin era is over, we don't want to be in the position that we were in 30 years ago when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, when you had to try to make and fail right, a superhuman effort to create a historical record. That is very true. You know, One of the things I've written about, about the Marcos era, was how this generation of Marcoses were able to achieve archival and narrative power. Because the Marcoses had a vast archive that is online, that is on the internet, that was very easy for their followers and their hired propagandists to use to um, you know jazz up to 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 provide evidence of the so-called glory of the Marcos era, and I think counter archive needed to be put out there because really for ordinary people, ordinary news consumers, the internet is the archive, right? And so we have to put out there information that counters the dominant narrative and that empowers other people to provide alternative narratives of power. Let me just say you know, that the erasure of history from my own country's experience is that very few Americans know that at the turn of the century, um, the US invaded the Philippines and killed about a million Filipinos who died of hunger, disease, and fighting in a bloody war, you know, in, in an attempt to suppress Filipino independence. And a lot of this has been erased from history. But there are, as you said, fragments of it because there were some newspapers actually here in the US that wrote about that and now we're relying on, on these accounts from the late 19th century to reconstruct and put together a history that has been erased 
And in fact, you know, you Americans talk about history being erased in your country, but American involvement overseas, that whole history has also largely been erased with this propaganda of the US being the leader and defender and promoter of the free world. Yeah, and I think I think the key thing here is it doesn't it's not this absence of record is not just important post fact, right? It's not just important for a record and a reckoning subsequently. It's important in the moment. And I think one of the things that's striking again about when you look at the comparisons made between the US, which is rightly very proud of its First Amendment and its and its media pluralism, compared to places where traditionally there's been you know, only really government propaganda or, or very few sources, is the dearth of sources that you see in the states, particularly at local um, and community level, where media has essentially been eliminated and, and carved out, so-called news deserts, and, and what the space that that's allowed is the kind of domination of media that we've seen in many other places where one very powerful individual who is supportive of one side or other has been able to move into a community, essentially take over a local newspaper and pump out endless amounts of local political propaganda. So the, the kind of tropes that you see happening perhaps on a national level in, in autocracies elsewhere, we see playing out in, at a local level here in the States with the elimination of, of a pluralistic, hyper-local, local media. Masha, how, how are Russians able to do this when the entire Russian media is you know, under the thumb? I mean, how do, you, how do you record, how do you report when there is, you know, you know, as we saw in the case of Evan, there's absolutely no freedom to report independently? Um, so I have a two-part answer to that. One, one is to acknowledge just how restrictive this, the current information regime is, right? And uh, uh, certainly the, the arrest of Evan Gershkovich uh, drew attention to it. And um, I, had, I had a piece in The New Yorker trying to put it into context. Uh, there are two things that I think we miss about this arrest, right? One is that it is perfectly legal. And I think this is actually what I would uh, point to as another uh, common thread in, uh, in, in, er, in contemporary autocracies that distinguishes them from 20th century autocracies. Um, so if you looked at the laws that were in the books, uh, on the books in the Soviet Union during the worst years of, this, of Stalinist terror, they looked okay, you know? They were like just regular laws that you would find in other countries. Not all of them, but a lot of them, right? What was uh, not like uh, uh, countries that we think of as democracies uh, was enforcement, right? There was, there, was no, uh, there was no legal procedure, there, was, there were no defense attorneys, there were closed trials if trials happened at all, there were you know, th these sheets of paper with thousands of names on them of people to be executed that were just signed summarily, et cetera. But it wasn't legal, right? uh, which actually made it easier to, uh, to, tr to start reversing in the brief period after Stalinist terror uh, ended. Um, in contempor contemporary autocracies are legalistic. Everything that happens in Russia happens in accordance with the letter of the law. 
uh, everything that happens in Occupy Palestine happens in accordance with the letter of the law as Israel decides to twist it, uh, but it's, it's, it's legalistic, right? Uh, and, um, and so Evan Gershkovich uh, is uh, jailed and is facing up to 20 years in prison for practicing journalism because Russian law says that collecting information for any purpose whatsoever, if it can be useful to foreign to hostile power, is a crime is the crime of espionage, right? Or the crime of high treason if it's a Russian citizen. So Vladimir Karamurza, another journalist, was just sentenced to 25 years in prison last week for practicing journalism and political activism. Um, so we've never, not even during the Stalin era, seen this kind of restrictive information regime in um, in, in, in Russia. We've never seen, uh, seen it be this difficult for foreign correspondents to practice uh, their craft. So that's one part of the answer. And the other, the other part, of part of the answer is almost the opposite, uh, which is that Russian journalists, most independent Russian journalists have left the country, not all of them. The ones who remain in the country uh, work anonymously. Uh, some media outlets have been incredibly inventive in the way they work with these journalists. For example, they, um, they distribute assignments mm -hmm. so that people are reporting only small parts of the story. It's very old school. Uh, uh, the story is put together by an editor uh, who is abroad, but it's a way of protecting, uh, making it less easy to, tra to trace the source and also you know, to protect the, uh, the journalist while they're working. Right? Um, and of course, they've been incredibly inventive in what they can do from outside the country. And this is something that I think we need to be t talking about more because, again, uh, another new thing that, that we're seeing around the world is journalism in exile, right? You didn't used to have journalists in exile. You could have a journalist who went into exile, but they pretty much stopped being a journalist uh, when they did that, right? But uh, this phenomenon of people working to cover their country uh, or in the case of Russia, Russia and the war that Russia is waging in Ukraine, for primarily the audience back home from exile is new, right? And and they've done extraordinary stuff. They've um, by communicating with people through social media, by creating tip lines, uh, they've managed to cover a war that Ukraine is not giving them access and to. open source intelligence, which is a new and way source, yeah, right, of, absolutely, of, of absolutely. documenting war crimes even, even without being there on the ground, right? Exactly. Yeah. But you know, op uh, uh, open source intelligence is something that uh, Russian journalists have done a great job of, but conceivably someone else could do it too. Uh, what Russian journalists have done uh, that only they can do is get uh, people, often in the active military, to confess to war crimes on camera, right? Because they're speaking to another Russian and because they're so fed up and they have instant access to somebody who will listen. Right? So, Jody, we're seeing this all around the world, right? Both the weaponization of the law, as, as Masha said, um, especially new laws that are intended to restrict conversations online, and, and also the rise of exiled media. It's no longer, you know, they're huge community and not just in Russia but elsewhere in the world. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so let's put this in context and I do want to come back and talk about the exile media because I think that's a really key area. Last year, 67 journalists and media workers were, were killed as, as we documented them at the Committee to Protect Journalists. 
and that was a 50% increase on the previous year, and 363 journalists were in prison at the end of the year. That's the highest number in the 30 years that CPJ has been documenting this. So there is a direct link between this democratic collapse, this crisis of democracy that Jelani talked about, and the risk that that presents to journalists. And that's no surprise, right? Journalists are there writing the first draft of history. They are there trying to expose what governments who would rather keep these things hidden are doing, what big business is doing and corruption is doing. So as a, as a profession, we are under threat like never before, and you see that too in the States, and I can talk a little bit about, about how that's playing out as well. But it's absolutely true that in the face of that, we are seeing two, I think, important phenomena that we, we haven't yet worked out effe really effective ways to deal with. One is the vast numbers of, of journalists now going into exile, where to some extent they can report. It's not ideal. Journalists want to be close as possible to their sources, but they can in ways that they've never been able to before um, and need to do so securely. And, and we, I think identifying ways that we can effectively support journalists in exile to do their job. We're seeing Latin America is a place where we're seeing huge numbers of journalists go into exile from places like Nicaragua, Venezuela, now Guatemala. They need safe places in the region where they can support one another to operate. And last year, the vast majority of the direct assistance that we at CPJ gave was related to exile and, and you know obviously that's also in part linked to Afghanistan and Myanmar and so on. So so that's um, that's I think a really key area that we need to think about is how do we support those journalists in exile and then the second one is this related to this lawfare. Autocrats are not stupid unfortunately. They've worked out that international governments would say respect the rule of law, so they invented laws to respect. And then, so now if you say you've, you know, you've unfairly arrested this journalist, they'll say, well, we're, you know, this is legal. We're, we're respecting the rule of law. You asked us to respect the rule of law. That's what we're doing. And increasingly using non-speech-related laws to do it. And this is the real change. So it used to be that journalists were arrested for um, defamation, for, for for crimes related to the content that they were producing. Increasingly, we're seeing governments uh, arrest people under national security legislation, under terrorism legislation, and most worryingly and more recently, under financial for, uh, allegations Money of financial crime. Yeah. Right? We've seen it in the Philippines. We see it in Hong Kong with the case of Jimmy Lai. We see it in Guatemala in the case of Jose Ruben Zamora. And those are really difficult to challenge because it's easy for me, as a free speech advocate and a press freedom advocate, to say, release that person, what they said was perfectly valid, it's much more complicated if someone's accused them of uh, tax evasion and money laundering, because as journalists, our natural instinct is to say, oh, well, we need to investigate this, by which point that journalist might have been in jail then for several months, they've been smeared, um, they've been denigrated, all of which is intentional, of course, to, to create this idea that the journalist is untrustworthy and therefore everything that they report is untrustworthy. So those are some of the tactics that we see being used and almost certainly starting to, to come here. I'm wondering, you know, how much of this really, if you're talking about fighting back and all of that, is, is under the control of journalists? Because I also see, you know, a lack of agency on, on our part because all of these, all of, you know, social media platforms are not controlled by us. They're controlled 
out here in America, in, in Silicon Valley. We have no say in the algorithms that govern what our citizens see. Um, and which is very different when you were just talking about working in a local community or in a country where you can hold your own leaders to account. But here, with this globalized media ecosystem, how much power and agency do we really have? Not only do journalists not control social media, journalists don't control traditional media. Uh, and um, I'm sorry. We don't control anything. Uh, <laughs> we don't control you know, anything. Uh, I mean, I, uh, we, uh, we have a way of talking about democracy and journalism as though we knew what democracy was, or as though we like had it just yesterday, right? And uh, uh, and and we had like near perfect journalism also just yesterday, and we just have to like fix a couple of things so that they get we get back to that perfect state. Um, in fact, we had um, in some respects a number of good decades in American journalism when there was a uh, an accidental sort of. C synergy between the profit-making model of, of media and, uh, and news exi exigencies, right? It just so happened that people uh, needed to, pla to place enough classified ads uh, and, and, um, uh, and companies needed to advertise enough to local markets for this news model to work. There's no reason in the world it should work. It is a crazy model, but that's, you know, we act as though that, uh, that is normal and there's some reason it should work and we should like, sh just find some magical solution uh, to, to get more clicks so that it, we get, get, can get back to that uh, uh, n normal, but there's nothing normal about it. And unless we learn to talk about media as a public utility and journalism as a public utility, uh, we're not gonna really have a meaningful conversation about democracy and journalism. That's so true. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is a separate conversation because I, I, I think we're, we're often now in a space where we really desperately want to define public good and public interest in a very tight way that we can all agree on. And I, I'm concerned that as we think about funding models for journalism, there will be an, a desire to move to a, a state in which we can have the single truth of what is public interest journalism, whereas actually what is valuable to one community is not necessarily valuable to another. So I think we have to be very careful as we start to think about these other models for funding journalism about this question of, of public interest, but I couldn't agree more. I think being able to show our value is the agency that we have. You know, Why does it matter? What is happening as a result? We increasingly at CPJ are talking not so much just about the journalist who was killed. Of course that's important, the death of any journalist it is uh, a, a terrible tragedy, but also what the story that was lost in the process, what does the community lose? We're coming up to the one year anniversary of the, the killing of the uh, Palestinian American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. It, it's not just the death of, of her as an individual, but what the community loses, what we as, as the community lose from that person and that report not being getting out. And I think we probably have not done a good enough job talking about that. And I think the other thing that we have agency around, or certainly I would hope that news editors and newsrooms have agency around, is protecting the safety of their journalists. You know, we may not be able to control everything that Elon Musk does. Um, uh, I don't think Elon Musk is able to control everything Elon Musk does, but... Um, <laughs> 
But um, what we can do is make sure that people are supported to know what will happen if you receive abuse on social media and how to protect you from that and what happened, you know, to make sure that people are not going into um, political rallies unprepared for the potential violence. And I think, you know, when we, we perhaps come in questions to talk about 2024 and, and um, but there are lessons, I think, to be learned from how journalists have been attacked offline after being attacked online and in political protests and at political rallies that I think we could learn from elsewhere as we move into what I think is going to be a very febrile 2024 in, in the state. You know, part of this whole discourse in democracy is really not just limited to journalists. And really, this is not just our role alone. I mean, it's very hard to say that you expect journalists to defend democracy for you, right? Because, because this is really something. Democracy is, is every citizen's, um, the guarding of democracy is something that every citizens and institutions in society should take care of. It's just that journalists are out there in the front lines and become sort of the canary in the coal mine when democracy is being threatened. But I really think that you know, no matter how much agency or power or how little we have, and given the state of journalism, given the state of the information ecosystem, this is something that repairing the information ecosystem should not be left to us poor journalists. And it seems that there's a lot of expectations. It's almost like a messianic thing that we can do it, but the reality is we can't. And we need institutions of society to support us. You know, I'm asked often, uh, and, and we talked about it a little bit pre-panel. You know, is what, what makes America different, and you know, and and I think, you know, there was a kind of well, what the thing that makes America different is that America thinks that it's different, and you know, <laughs> but but actually there is well, there is one thing that makes America different, and and you know, the fact that America has 46 percent of the world's civilian guns. 120 guns for every, it does make it fundamentally different. It changes the rules of the game hugely for journalists. And I think that's, that's the elephant in the room for me as, a, as someone working on journalist protection and journalist safety that, that doesn't really get talked about in America. But there is a fundamental difference. If I go to a protest and cover a protest, or I go to somebody's house in the UK to report on, you know, to ask them a question, but they weren't expecting me at the door, I will not be shot in the head. But it may happen here, and in fact, it's quite likely. Um, and I think that is a paradigm, you know, completely different paradigm in which journalists and everybody else is operating that simply is not found elsewhere, certainly not, you know, that's a level of danger for an ordinary journalist that you, you wouldn't experience, but the people who are, who are shot and killed in Mexico largely are reporting on organized crime. They're not doing ordinary reporting, and I, and I think that's a reckoning that America hasn't made. I just, I want to sound, and maybe this is my very skewed perspective, I want to sound a word of caution about protecting journalists. Because in this country, uh, and and this has a lot to do with with, with the profit-making model of everything, uh, in this country, care is often confused with liability. And um, I can see as we go into a dangerous political season, uh, corporate media putting placing restrictions on journalists. This is something that 
journalists who report on wars, uh, as I do, have experienced in the last few years particularly. Restrictions placed by them, uh, on them by corporations uh, in the name of protecting them, but really uh, for fear of liability. Right? Uh, so, I mean, we have to be, to scrutinize uh, the way that media outlets protect their journalists to make sure that it's meaningful protection, meaningful care. Yeah, I, and I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think that fear of fear of being sued is not a reason not to to send people to cover important stories. I just, you know, I am conscious that um, when we talk about similarity and difference, there is a fundamental difference in the kind of environment, the the environment in which journalists may be operating. That is a difference from, say, operating in Paris or um, Warsaw. So I think on that note, we'll end this panel. I'd like to thank Jodi and Marsha. Thank you, and Thank you, Sheila. <laughs> thank you for listening. Thanks again to Marsha, Jodi, and Sheila for that conversation. One more note. Keep your eye on the kicker feed. We'll soon be back with an interview with Svetlana Oslavska, who is a Ukrainian journalist who was the subject of a story published in CGR's latest issue on journalists working under authoritarian regimes. We'll link to that story and that digital issue in the show notes. See you soon.